1: August the 28th, 2015, and this is episode uh, 1634 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, 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 that's right, it is the monster show of the week, your questions for the expert Council, and a couple here for me as well. I think I've got nine of the 11, so I think we have three, three MIAs this week, uh, Two, uh, specifically saying, hey, I'm not going to be able to do it this weekend. One, Piker, who will remain unnamed. You can figure it out for yourself. Anyway, before uh, I get into your your questions and responses from myself and the expert council, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you, help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time. When we vetted them for the sponsorship program, we checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. If you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills, and one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. you can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, It's really easy to endorse a company. When you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company, and hey, if you haven't been a a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription, you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the member support brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay, knowing that you know after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year 1634, and uh, I have three for you from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. First is Jobs Created by Eliminating Wind Power, and then I have Buggery is Now Illegal in Ireland. And I have On Wisconsin, On Wisconsin Forward. I'm going to read, Jobs Created by Eliminating Wind Power, because I have an interesting take that's completely different than Alex's take. Um, Last year, a wind-powered sawmill was built near the Strand in London. The Strand is a major road following the Thames River. Apparently, it has been a successful business uh, that a lot of sawers are out of work. A sawer is a man who saws the wood by hand. King Charles I of England is fighting an economic slump, so he demolishes the sawmill in order to quell a possible riot and put the sawers back to work. The first wind-powered sawmill was introduced in Holland in 1592, but England was slow to adopt these labor-saving machines. There were no laws against powered sawmills, but the workers would riot, so they would soon shut down. England would not use powered sawmills in substantial numbers until the mid-1800s they were steam powered and so efficient compared to handsaws, they were irresistible. In the modern day, we're told our economy will soar using wind power and solar panel in certain applications. Wind and solar are reasonable, but in general case, they depend on the whim of the weather. Because one needs power at the very time that wind and solar are unavailable, one must use fuel power generators back up. But shouldn't it be the other way around? A solar and wind generators is back up and fuel power generators primary. I don't know if I agree with that at all. We we'll, we'll get into this some other day. I think that. I think there's way too much pessimism, uh, pessimism around alternative energy sources. I really do. I think that the people that know that the left are overly optimistic are blinded by the rights over pessimism. right? So I, I'm not going to go into that. I'm going to talk about something totally different today. Um, technology eliminating jobs and government saying they've created jobs by preventing technology from eliminating jobs. Boy, that sounds a lot like what we're going to be dealing with in the next you know 10, 20 years. There is so much automation replacing so many jobs. But people don't write anymore when their jobs are eliminated. They just demand more money or then say, give me money for not working. But it is typical that technology always gets in the way of labor. And let's talk about the labor that we're getting in the way of here. What was the SARS draw, job like in the 1600s in England? You know, Do you think this was a job that people really wanted? Uh, the truth is it's a job that... Only certain people could do. You had to be in shape to do this job. Uh, there is a a group of series from uh, BBC, and one's called Tales from the Green Valley. That might be the one that I saw this in, Tales from the Green Valley. There's also Victorian Farm, Edwardian Farm, Wartime Farm. These are all, the, the girl named, was named Ruth Ginsburg, I think, and she has these, Peter and some other dude with her on several of these and different people on the others, and they go back and they lived in a period of time. And I think it was Tales of the Green Valley that they showed how these sawmills actually worked. Picture yourself with one of those, you know those big crosscut saws and big rip saws that have like two big handles on them and one guy grabs one handle, one guy grabs the other and you go and you use it like to let's say buck a fallen tree or something like that. Okay, imagine one of those saws. And now imagine a great huge pit. Okay? And across that pit goes a tree. It needs to be planked into, and hewed into planks, okay? And one guy is in the pit, and the other guy is standing above the pit, usually on the tree itself, and walking backwards as he does this. And they take that giant two-hand, you know, two-handed two-man saw, and they saw the entire length of that tree. And the first cut, of course, is a shaping cut. Then you get some planks, and you get a final shaping cut off off the last one. Think about that. And the guys take turns because the guy on the bottom, obviously, his job sucks worse. He's in the pit, right, with all the like, dust falling on him and crap. But these guys would riot because someone took away their livelihood, even though their livelihood sucked. They were tougher people than we are. That That's one lesson there. But the other lesson is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Today, we are still seeing a conflict between technology and labor and think about this, the ultimate promise of socialism, because socialism is repackaged communism. If you actually read Karl Marx, the promise of socialism is that technology will evolve to the point where human labor is unnecessary and people won't have to do anything. Really. Good luck with that. My take by Jack Spirko. Anyway, with a... Uh, with that out of the way, let me remind you real quick about the uh, Member Support Brigade. If you'd like to support the show, just go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members for more information. There, That's all I'll say about that today. I'm now ready to get into uh, the main topic of today's show, which is your questions and, and what have you for the expert council. But I'm going to start out with one that came in that I've decided to field myself. Uh, it is on uh, Ruger stocks, Ruger ten twenty two stock options. I just realized how that sounded, stock options. Not those kinds of options with stock. Stock, like stock for a long gun, options, what are your choices? This comes from Chris. Chris says, I have a question about stock selection for a Ruger ten twenty-two carbine. After hearing about a project Appleseed on a recent podcast, I was happy to find they're having an event in October in my area, and I'm determined to attend to learn a thing or two about marksmanship. I think it will be a great skill to learn, although I've never used a rifle before. I'm looking forward to getting a Ruger 10-22 carbine, and I can't decide between factory wood or synthetic stock and was hoping for some input in regards to the difference and benefits of each one. The wood stock seems a little heavier and wider, but I think I like the look more, hoping to get some professional feedback on what might benefit more. Thanks, guys. Chris, Chris I would say honestly on this one, it, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about the difference between stock types and what they may or may not do for you, depending on you know what you're dealing with. But with a Ruger 10-22, buy what you like. Um, everything I'm going to say about wood and synthetic stocks, um, unless you're shooting in the Olympics or something, doesn't apply at, at the 22 long rifle level. Unless something's bad, wrong. Okay. So, what do you like better? Now, for me personally you're going to be shooting at an Appleseed. You're going to be shooting offhand and prone with and without rest. And you're, you've never owned a rifle before. So I'm going, to, I'm going to take that to mean you've not shot a lot either. So I think, first of all, you're a perfect candidate for Appleseed because if you've never shot, they'll make you into a good shooter and you won't be fighting a bunch of you know background information about the way things should be. So I think that's great in itself. That said... People like light rifles because if you're hiking for three days in the, the Bitterroot Mountains looking for elk or something like that, a pound off your back is a big deal. And if you don't think it is, by the second day, every ounce starts to become a big deal. So the concept of lightweight rifles is something that's, that's really um, appreciated by the mountain hunter. Uh, but anybody that does a lot of spot, spot, spot and stock hunting, anything like that, anything other than the guy that just, you know, drives his four wheeler and then walks the last hundred yards into a, a, a tree stand or something, anybody else would appreciate a lighter weapon for hunting. This is a weapon for shooting target, uh, developing your skill set as a marksman, and let's face it, a 1022 is a light rifle compared to center fire hunting rifles anyway. So the weight savings does almost nothing for you but it can do something against you. If you ever watch professional target shooters, competition target shooters, you'll notice that they have things like bull barrels, heavy weight barrels on their rifles. There's s- several reasons for that, but one of the main things is a, a heavy rifle is more stable and m- a little bit more forgiving to some errors in your technique. Now, it's not going to make a crappy shooter into a good shooter, But I've just found it is much easier to help a person become consistent shooting a weapon with a little more weight in it. Sure, this has something to do with recoil, but with a 22, it's insignificant anyway. But that little bit of weight gives you a little bit better feel, especially as you're developing your form and your skill and your craft and the ability to get into the right mindset, what what, what Scout always called the rifleman's bubble, that place where all I'm concerned about is this shot and the next one. With the, the, weight and the tactile feel of the weapon, it's a little bit more there for you, I guess, is the way I'm looking at it. And weight generally leads to a little bit more inherent accuracy. With the 1022 specifically, the profile of the fore end's a little wider, as you kind of mentioned there. And I feel that that also gives a little bit more of a tactile feel, uh, to, to the shooter to have a little bit more substance in hand. So, I, if you like the Woodstock, I would already say if you were going to flip a coin, and instead of flipping a coin you were going to ask Jack, I would have sent you to the Woodstock version anyway. So that that's what I would recommend. But you can't go wrong either way. Now, why is there even this differential? What is the purpose? Well, if we get out of low-pressure rounds like twenty-two Long Rifle, and we move up to high pressure center, fives, center fires like 308 Winchester, 270, uh, 30 6, things like this. When you fire that weapon at that higher pressure, pressure, the barrel oscillates. Now, all barrels oscillate from any firearm, including a 22 short. But the higher the pressure, the more the barrel oscillates. Now, what is oscillation? Oscillation is, is, that, is that round is traveling down the barrel. It's going through these grooves, these rifled grooves, and it's imparting that spin onto your bullet. And that is you know what makes rifles more inherently accurate than something like a smoothbore gun. And as it's pushing that round through those riflings and twisting, you're looking at you know fifty thousand CUP of pressure. Uh, on on many rounds and higher on on some others. right? It's a lot of pressure. It's an explosion being controlled and channeled down a relatively small piece of steel. As you might imagine, that steel doesn't just stay rock solid and not move. It kind of moves and it it kind of oscillates. It it moves like a wet noodle. You can find some really high-speed video of barrels in oscillation. It's kind of cool. Now, when that happens... If the the stock is pushing against the barrel, or if the barrel comes into contact with the stock, it will slightly alter where the round impacts, and where it can have a a, a very big uh, differentiating factor in when the round impacts. It's not so much the stock touching the the barrel during oscillation, but if there's pressure on the barrel prior to shot. Take your 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 um your your right index finger, point like you're pointing at something in the distance, and take your left index finger and push, like on the last joint of your finger to the right, and then push up from the bottom and then push down from the top, and resist it with your finger each time. And just think about how that would impact differently if your finger was a gun. Now, steel's stronger than your finger, but a bullet's a lot stronger than your other finger, right? Okay? So when there's a lot of pressure built up on a stock it will impact differently. And what what the problem isn't so much accuracy, it's consistency. As that pressure changes, the point of impact moves. So what a lot of people do then is they call it floating a barrel. So if you have a wood stock, you take material off the stock so the barrel simply is free-floated. You take a piece of paper and you run all the way down the barrel inside the stock, and now the, the barrel won't make contact with the stock. Where the synthetic stock comes in is wood as a natural material is far more subject than things like nylon and other synthetics to absorbing moisture and changing size and dimension based on moisture and temperature. And the barrel itself also has some, some fluctuation, but it's, it's minimal comparatively. So, what can happen is we have our rifle with wood stock all nice and zeroed in. And we know that rifle hits consistently where we want. We go hunting and it's wet. And it's cold. We have ice on the stock, for God's sakes. But it's I'm also carrying it, so it's it's melting in some places. Water seeping in, even through the the finish, and it's getting in, and the stock swells. Or it, it, it or we're in a very dry environment, very cold, and everything shrinks, and pressure that was there is removed. So it, you'd think, well, now it's free floating or whatever. Now there's no pressure. That would be good. Yeah, but it still changes the point of impact. As long as the pressure is consistent. The point of impact consistency when it changes, because it affects that oscillation. All right, I have a great video on this I'll, I'll, I'll put in today's show notes. But if you think about it, if you, if you hit a, a, a rod, like you had a steel rod, and you smack a piece of concrete with it, right? it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a certain vibration to it. And to be able to smack it the exact same way so it vibrates the exact same way the next time, which is what we call harmonics. That's harmonics of the barrel. So how consistently the barrel oscillates shot to shot to shot. If the pressure is the same or there's no pressure, the harmonics are very even. If the pressure changes, the harmonics are different, the impact changes. So with a synthetic stock, it's less likely the stock will swell or shrink or change the pressure on the barrel. So a lot of people that hunt, especially in mountains and harsh environments, prefer a synthetic stock because it's lighter weight, because every ounce matters, and it's less susceptible to uh, the environment. So it's more consistently accurate. As far as it's it, again, it's it's not about accuracy, it's about consistency of accuracy. So being consistently impacting the same spot, because if that pressure's there. And it goes away. Let's say the barrel had pressure against the stock, and the stock shrinks, and the pressure's gone. When I shoot it, it will impact differently than when I zeroed it. But if I keep shooting it, and I'm doing my job, it will group well. It just won't group in the same place. How big a problem is this, really? Unless you're soaking your stocks in the water, or unless you're the long-range hunter that's taking 500-yard shots, not much. Not much. A lot of men put a lot of meat in a lot of freezers and a lot of meat larders, For a long time before anybody ever saw a synthetic stock. Personally, I prefer wood. I really do. I prefer wood. When I have a a centerfire rifle, I free float my barrel with a little bit of sandpaper, and it works out just great. Again, check out the video to to learn more about this. And uh, let's go ahead and now take a question for Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer himself. This question is... uh, from a listener named Jen. Jen says, uh, what parts of conventional beekeeping should I avoid to raise a healthy natural hive? My friend considers himself a bee expert and has extensively trained on how to train to raise bees using conventional methods. He's passionate about his bees and very excited to help me with starting a hive next year. The the problem is he does everything using chemicals and conventional means. He was very proud that he only lost half his hives last year compared to the 70% loss most commercial keepers in his area. Have. I want to keep a hive in a more natural way using plants, location, hive design, etc., to keep the hive healthy instead of dousing it with pharmaceutical medicine. Basically, I want a permaculture hive, so when my friend gives me advice, what suggestions of his should I avoid like the plague? Thanks, Jen. Michael Jordan, what say you, sir?
2: Hey, Jen. Thanks for reaching out on a controversial issue of conventional means of beekeeping. I cannot see anything or anyone being happy with a 50% loss. But that was a type of beekeeping in the past. I have many beekeeping brethren all over the world. Loss even from winter kill is no more than 13 to 20% at the most for beekeepers that avoid stress feeding and package pickups. But back in the day, beekeepers lost a lot of bees from shipping and pollination contracts. Many books up to 2006 are all based on the A.E. Root or Langstroth methods of beekeeping. Home beekeeping has always been uh, different than commercial and uh, conventional beekeeping methods. Uh, Beekeepers used to have losses up to 30%, and that's in the commercial end, and that's on the large end of beekeeping. But able to split hives and regrow from the loss in the spring uh, was was. Typical that when you lost, you split your hives, you regrowed, and then whatever's extra you sold to the public. But man, if you're talking 50 and 70 percent, that's that's ass night, man. Uh, poor farming makes bees die. Simple fact. Uh, poor beekeeping management uh, kills bees. Simple fact. The lack of older beekeepers not teaching homesteading methods of beekeeping to younger generations makes it so beekeeping is harder to do. Uh, when you lose half your hives and able to rebuild them from splitting them, it's not really a loss. But if you're just splitting them to keep your production the same, that's no growth. And that means you're meddling along. And that's what we're trying to avoid. That's not sustainable. Um, I have a loss around 10% every year. I'm almost uh, sure that, uh, you know, it just depends on what I'm doing with the bees. Uh, I also manage more than five hives. I'm not sure how many this man uh, manages. Uh, Sometimes my losses are bigger gains because uh, I marry some of my weaker hives to my larger hives and then split them in the spring. Sometimes you can split them twice, taking that one hive into three. So I'm not sure how many hives uh, he manages, but to have only two hives uh, after five would totally suck for a backyard beekeeper. As a beekeeper that tries to sell his hives after three years, uh, I build them up. I do not understand this kind of loss. I build up my hives. I get some honey. and In three years, they're about three deep, 40 pounds of bees, two honey boxes, and probably requeened, ready for sale. Uh, I probably split them twice uh, to make it for the one I sold and to grow one, and then I marry them down to make a stronger hive. I sell these hives that way for about $700. I sold 10 of them last year out of my backyard this way. And for some reason, uh, after the swarm season this year, I had all 10 back and more. No cost to me. So having uh, losses is common, but damn, 50%. My banker would pull my account and I'd have to close my business because I would be a bad investment. I, I would not see that. Um that's amazing uh i I can't, I can't that's just amazing uh things to avoid number one feed feed all packaged bees for a full year uh you'll have them and try them to keep them from swarming uh, Watch them for the full year just feed them um This is one of the things that is like a myth that conventional beekeepers tell everybody is that uh, you only need to feed them for a couple months uh. Let's face it, if we want bees next year and not buy a new package, feed them. All sites will tell you to feed for four weeks and quit. I'm telling you to feed them the same amount of feed every week for one year. Some days they'll eat all the feed and then have to wait for seven days. Others will take four days to eat a mason jar, which is three pounds of feed. Feed them, get them to build wax, make brood, build a hive, manage the swarming, uh, get the medication in the feed. Number two, on that note, you do not need to feed your bees corn sugar all the time. Find other sources of honey to feed them. Yes, I said honey. It's most the most antiseptic thing out there. Lives in the wild and does not mold people. So when people tell you don't feed your bees other people's honey, what they're trying to say is that make sure your honey is a good honey that you're getting from the people. Don't buy it from a store or some GMO crop. Get a couple frames of honey from a local beekeeper and put them in your hide to feed those bees. You know. Also, you know, it doesn't have to be honey. You know, because honey never goes bad; it won't hurt your bees. Uh, find uh, some other recipes on the internet. Talk to other people. Make a fondant or gels, or even blend apple juice with car uh, with some teas. Uh, you know, I use a, I use a golden seal and. Some other things like that, that that makes a tea when I blend it down with my honey to feed my girls. and This is a type of medication for no sema and dysentery. So if you're using chamomile tea blended with honey and apple juice and stuff like that, they're getting good sugar, good natural feeding supply, and you're helping medicate them. So that's how you get your medication in your feeds. Don't listen to medicate, medicate, medicate. Number three, medicate your bees does not mean vaccinate. That means to take measures to ensure the health of your bees. Do not, uh, you do not need to medicate for mites every year. and You do not need chemicals to do so if you have to treat for mites or hive beetles or dysentery. There are other methods out there, so use them. It's not going to harm you to try other things. Because if you're going to dump a whole bunch of chemicals in there, you talk to beekeepers from all over that are looking into other methods. and It's called the medication treadmill. They're trying to get off of it. Package bees are being shipped to you, and they're already sick. It's going to take you one year to realize that next year they're not going to be here because they're already shipped to you sick. So, you know, medicate them, but find other meads with your feed. You know, hell, the menthol and the blue towel works great. So look, in, look into those uh, other uh, methods. Number four, winter your hives. You know, they people are telling you, oh, know, they should last. Man, make sure there's feed. And when you keep them fed, keep them warm and out of the wind. Leave 30 to 60 pounds of honey and do not take it all all the time. That just makes sure that they have a food is not enough. You know, just because they have it, it doesn't mean that they're going to make it. You know, uh, you have to check the weight of the beehive a couple times of the year to see, you know, it'll help you check your swarming, honey production, uh, bee population. Uh, make sure you get a temperature or a thermal gun, right? Check the temperature on your hives all through the year. Make sure that the, the temperature is a good working condition. Be smart and see changes before they get out of hand. Most books or YouTube videos say check every two weeks and let them go over the winter. Bullcrap. Try that with any other animal husbandry and see what happens. <laughs> this is a farm management skill, not a science project to see the results. Um, look around you, see other beekeepers, go to beekeepers clubs, clinics. See what their losses are. See what kind of beehives they're using. See what kind of management skills they're using. If others are having losses like this, shit, man, we have a long work ahead of us. As I see it, the system of beekeeping has lasted over the last 30 years. Has, has It has changed tremendously. It is an art to be a beekeeper. It takes a skill set that most people do not have. It takes time that many people do not possess it is dangerous and often deadly to some people yes many have bees many have had them for years they will tell you that you get out of them what you put into them that beekeeping and having bees is fun but being a beekeeper is work if you want to make sure that you're doing good work the bees that uh, you know conventional beekeeping has been around it's always going to be around but we're looking for changes thanks for bringing it up that people are very happy to have bees and it is common thing that to have big losses like this we need to change this loss we need to be sustainable beekeepers if you're going to do it for a backyard beekeeping and you're not looking for the major products and sales it is okay to have them and only check them two or three times a week just to make sure you still have bees. But don't think you're going to have a whole bunch of hives without managing them correctly and have less than 30% loss. I am the bee whisperer from a bee-friendly company telling you to know your beekeeper to get your honey. Get your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Support your farmer's markets and college, cottage industries because we all have to start someplace and help your fellow man. Because sometimes, well, he's just ignorant and it's not getting to him. Have a blessed day.
1: I guess my upshot from all of that would be uh, tell your friend thank you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure your friend can be useful in certain situations as you're learning. If, if they want to come over and help you maybe open a hive or something. Um, but when it comes to the chemicals and all, don't. And there's a lot of people out there that are beekeepers and most beekeepers are very passionate, whether they're conventional, natural, small cell, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is they do, they're passionate about it. And there's a lot of people that can help you. So I would say find someone as a mentor that's doing things the way you want to do them and and don't use your friend just because you're your friend. I mean, that's that's a big mistake a lot of people make. I, 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 it's the same kind of thing when, well, what kind of insurance did you get for your business? I got this and this. Well, why? Because this guy said so. Well, why did you select him as your agent? Well, he's a friend from high school. It doesn't mean he's a good insurance agent. and it, it doesn't mean that he knows anything at all about your type of business or your sector. It just means that somebody gave him an insurance license because he passed an exam. And some companies won't let him write policies or, or, or actually sign up policies. He did not write the policies. He signs up people for policies. The underwriters write the policies. So it doesn't mean that he's a good beekeeper just because he's your friend. It doesn't mean that, that your buddy that's a lawyer is the right lawyer to represent you in court. If, if he's a tax attorney and you're being sued by somebody for, uh, for, for fraud or, or something. You know, you, you find the right professional for what you want to do. That's my addition there. Next question is for Tim Glantz. Here's the question. Uh, what is your opinion on older military vehicles compared to same-age civilian vehicles from a durability and supportability perspective? How do you recommend people go about researching purchasing a surplus military vehicle? Take something like a CUCV or a uh, or a military pickup. How do they compare to civilian models of a similar year, aside from 12 versus 24 volts, Electrical system, what are the differences to be considered? What do you see as the advantages of a military vehicle? Mr. Tim Glance, we'll say you.
3: Hi, everybody in TSP land. Tim Glantz here with Old Groucher Surplus. Uh, back after uh, being out for a while. My apologize to, to Jack and everybody. Had a lot of stuff here that kind of caught me by surprise. But I've got some answers from Matt on his questions about military vehicles and the differences and the best way to buy them. If it's a vehicle like the Cut V-Series that also had a civilian equivalent, the biggest difference you'll find is, of course, there's a 24-volt electrical system on all military vehicles. That's done because larger vehicles are easy to start with 24 volts. And by standardizing it across the fleet, this way a Humvee can jump off an M1 tank and they can both use the same electronics and everything else. So that will be a difference you'll have to contend with. Uh, other than that, typically the only other difference is that the military order usually orders the strongest op- possible drivetrain options. You could have walked into GM in the early 80s and bought a pickup directly from them to the exact same specs as the cutby. And what you would have ordered would have been stripped down of any creature comforts, uh, right down to no floor mats and you know bare metal floor, and then the strongest drivetrain they had with low gears. So from a supportability standpoint, your parts are the same. If you go in and tell them you've got an 83 Chevy truck, uh, K30, you're going to get the same parts. Uh, the, except for, of course, like I said, the 24-volt 24, 24 electrical system, which can be easily converted to 12 in this case because it wasn't truly 24. It was a, it was a hybrid system. Even when you go back in some of the older Jeeps, of course, the M151 series Jeeps didn't have a civilian equivalent. Before that, it was the M38A1, which was pretty much a CJ-5. The body was slightly different. Uh, the CJ-5s had tailgates uh, in the same years where the M38A1s didn't. Uh, the military spec, a bigger gas can opening, you know, slightly different stuff. And, of course, the 24-volt electrical system. But for the most part, if there was a civilian equivalent out there, they will be mostly the same. Now, for how to buy, that depends on two things. How mechanically inclined are you, and how much work are you willing to do? Well, three things, and the last one being the biggest, actually, how much risk are you willing to take? Uh, currently, there's a company called Iron Planet who has the option... For, or the contract for selling all the military vehicles, they took it from government liquidation several months ago. They list things up on their website. You bid, you buy it. Now, unless you happen to live close to where the vehicle is being auctioned, you're going only by their description. So you're getting, you know, what they say is there. And if it's not quite right, maybe they'll make it right. Maybe they won't. They, I will say, Iron Planet seems to be doing a much better job of that than government liquidation was. Go ahead and plan on having to fix it. And one of the biggies, I tell everybody who's looking at buying a military surplus vehicle, don't plan on driving at home. Don't plan on driving at home. Factor into your expenses the cost of having it towed or hauled to your house because you will not know if it's a safe vehicle to drive on the road or not. You do not have time when you pick it up to do the proper amount of inspection to know. Believe me, the government never gets rid of a truck because it runs too well. And right before they get rid of it, a lot of units are going to start swapping the bad parts for good parts, and then they're going to send one in that's been uh, pretty well cannibalized, and they put all the bad parts from the other trucks on this one, took all the other good parts off. That's not uncommon. And putting it on the road without taking it home and getting that military manual out and doing a complete by-the-book service on it, in my opinion, is unsafe and irresponsible. On top of that, the process for getting a title for your vehicle doesn't start until after you've picked it up. You don't pick it up and sign the paperwork and pick up a title. You pick up what's called a standard Form 97, which is a government release of the vehicle because the government doesn't have titles on them. Then, if you can pick that up on site, usually you have to wait a few weeks for it to process. Then you have to take it down and start your state's process for getting a tag. It varies state by state, so I can't tell you you know, what your state's going to be. But let's put it this way. You're not going to have a valid tag and registration to drive that thing on the road to get home unless you have to be one of maybe two or three states that will give you a temporary tag before you have a title. So, imagine that. You've got this truck. You picked it up. It seemed to be okay. You're going down the road. You're three miles down the road. The brakes quit working. You slam into somebody else's car. They get injured. The police come. Let's see your license and registration. Well, I don't have a registration. Now, what's going to happen? First, you're going to get tickets. If somebody gets killed, you might even go to jail. Then, whoever you hit... Their lawyers are going to start in on you. And they're going to take you to court and eat you alive for driving a, what they're going to call a salvage vehicle, because you bought it at a surplus salvage auction, without proper tags and registration in an unsafe manner on the street. And you are going to lose a lot more than that vehicle. So don't risk it. Factor in your cost at an auction, buying it, paying all your buyer's premium. That's the other thing. Most options have a buyer's premium of 5 or 10% over your bid, your applicable taxes, and the cost to have it hauled home. Now, when you add all that up, you know what? Nine times out of 10, you're going to be better off finding one locally from a military vehicle dealer or even on Craigslist. There's plenty of stuff on Craigslist. And the other advantage there is when you buy it, it's already been titled, already had that hassle done, so you can go get a tag right away, and you get to test drive it, which you don't get to do in a military auction. They don't let you test drive them. So, think about that both ways. Um, give me a, you know, give me a shout. My email's on the website at oldgrouch.com, and uh, thanks for all your questions. Thanks for your question, and thanks for uh, reaching out. And for everybody out there, I'm gonna give a little bit of a shameless plug here. Um, if you wear Happen to wear a size extra large short or large short. I just got some of the very last supply of American-made M65 field jackets in that size. And I'm throwing them out at a screaming good price of about $35. They're brand new. They are three-color desert camo, but in most of this country, in the fall and winter of the year, that that actually booms pretty well. And for those who don't know, there is no company making an American-made M65 field jacket in this country that a surplus store can go buy anymore. So I've only got to scrounge them. And on top of that, I also have a bunch of sizes that we're running a special on on the three-color desert BDU pants that we've got brand-new American-made ones for uh, right around $20. So uh, y'all be sure to check that out. And uh, thanks again for everything, Jack. Thanks to all of you for listening, and thanks to all of you for being great customers as well. The TSP crowd is definitely the best customer base I've ever had. The smartest, the most responsible, and the least troubled. Thanks a lot.
1: Yeah, and with everything Tim just said, let me say this is why I personally say the following. Do not buy a military vehicle, uh, specifically a, a Cub V, uh, either the, the 1008 or 1009, the Blazer, or the pickup, because it's a military vehicle, unless you just want to restore a military vehicle. Right. If you, uh, now, I'm not saying not to buy the military vehicle. I'm saying not, don't buy it just because it's a military vehicle unless you want to have an old military vehicle because you want it. Does that make sense? Buy any vehicle because the vehicle is a good value for what you want it to do for you. So I often kick around the idea of buying myself an old 1008 or 1009 and um just to have it. Just to have a restoration project, just to be able and you know this is like when I first went to Panama, even though I was a heavy wheel mechanic, um, I ended up in a unit that had really very few vehicles that fit my mos the the ten ton and above and the hammets and all I had like one Hemet and and two ten tons so I worked on five tons and down, which was at the time they called that a light wheel mechanic and a heavy wheel mechanic, and then there was a third job maintenance. And now they're all consolidated to one job because of the type of thing I'm talking about. So when I got there, this unit had like 100 uh, 1008s and 1009s. And I spent my first three months in a, in a regular unit working on them to get rid of them, just like Tim was talking about. Now, the difference is we had to make them as good as we could because they were leaving Panama and being given to National Guard and Reserve troops in the States when we were getting the new Humvees. So we were improving them, but I can tell you this. We only did what we had to to get them past inspection and out the door. If they were being given to civilians, we would have cannibalized the shit out of them, I'm telling you. So I I agree with what Tim's saying there. But I kind of want one because it's nostalgic. The other thing I really think is valuable about the 1008s and 1009s in particular is you can get a military manual, uh, a a dash 10, a dash 20, and a dash 30, and a dash 20p. Okay, the dash 10 is like the operator's manual, the dash 20 is like your basic mechanics manual and your dash 30 is your 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 top level maintenance, like everything until you're going to actually start ripping the motor apart. Right. They tell you every single thing in the the 20 P and I might have these numbers wrong, but that's what I remember in my head was the parts manual. So every single part in the vehicle. And they're cheap and they're available for download as PDF where you can get the hard copies and everything you need to know to maintain that vehicle is in those books and and made so a soldier can understand it. So so that's an advantage. Otherwise, it's just a truck. It's just a truck. Now, when it comes to buying one, I personally have made a decision for myself, and Tim just cinched it for me. Should I ever decide to get one of these, I will buy one that's already been titled and already been come out of auction that I can go out and drive. Um, a lot of these vehicles are made in the 80s. You know, I remember when an 80s car was a new car, but it ain't anymore. Uh, I remember when if you were born in the 70s, you were young and I ain't young anymore. All right. So to me, if I'm going to buy a vehicle that's, that's been beat up by soldiers for 20 or 30 years, I want to drive it and see what's really going on with it. Um, and it, anything that the person that bought it from auction fixed, they're almost never going to get their money back on these things. Sell unless they're full on, full beautiful restoration. If they're just functional running vehicles, they they sell cheap today. There's a lot of them out there, so I would at least look there first. And if you can't find what you're looking for, then consider buying one from auction. That's me personally. Um, it, it just you've got a you've got a title, the title's clean, it's easy to transfer. I can take the vehicle out and drive it. I don't have to have it worry about being towed. God knows what you're going to find. You know, you really don't know what you're going to find when you buy one at auction. You don't really get to do anything with that vehicle other than look at a picture of it. So that's my personal opinion. Next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton. Um, this question comes to us from. Tyler, and Tyler's question is basically he wants to uh, graze cattle in the Willamette Valley of Oregon, which is very dry, and it's unirrigated pasture, and how do we handle that? And he wanted to ask Jeff. I think Jeff's a great guy to ask that question to. So, uh, Mr. Lawton, I know you're kind of busy right now, but uh, tell us where you're calling in from, and uh, see if we can get some help for Tyler uh, to develop this pasture in a very arid environment.
4: Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the side of the road in Australia en route to England to talk at the International Permaculture Conference and also do some good filming, I hope, and get that out to the general public of the world to educate them about more about permaculture systems. Anyway, I have a question here about um, uh, what to do in in quite a dry Oregon landscape um, with uh, a grazing property. Um, where there's uh, not a lot of summer rainfall and, um, and there's a question about um, how to enhance the grazing systems to improve uh, the pr- production particularly with uh, beef cattle. And um, will, what will be the best move with a permaculture design? Well, if you actually can find the right surveys across a property and you don't have two steeper slopes you can put in swale divisions across a property and those swales will actually help rehydrate the property and then the swales being a tree growing system as well as initially a very much a water harvesting system but a water harvesting system that actually grows trees those trees can be forage trees and hangover forage trees to cattle now you can't let the the beef cattle go on the swell mounds. You can let them in the trench and on the back cut of the swell if you like, but you can't put them on the swell mound because that'll compact the swell mound and inhibit its ability to harvest water and grow those trees. But as long as you keep them off the mound, you can have hangover forage and cut forage trees that will greatly extend the uh, feed supply of the cattle. Plus, because swales are on contour, the cattle will walk the contour fence line and find spots that are Sheltered, whether it 's cooler or warmer or sunnier or shadier, depending what they like at that time of year, and they will manure the contoured fence line if that is the top of the pasture of the interswale, it will give you a trickle down nutrient to fertilize your pasture. if it is the bottom of the interswale, it will be above the swale itself, and it will give you trickle-down nutrient to feed your swales. Now, that trickle-down nutrient into your swales will be evenly diluted and spread throughout the swale, up and down, along, should I say, the swale itself, giving you a diluted manure tea in the swale when it does actually rain. It will sit there waiting for that to happen. That'll give you better tree growth. That'll give you better diversity of cut forage and gra- graze off forage for your cattle now in between the interswell you could use a chisel plough or an aerating plough every now and again to relieve the compaction of the cattle and use that same minor slight permissible disturbance of the pasture topsoil to in- diversify the seed and di- of the pasture diversify the, the, the pasture um, plant system itself and what you want to aim for is 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 plants that grow with very little tension but give you that diversity of yield in your cattle now you can also put in mineral blocks or mineral feed supplements to your cattle and you will get an enhanced diversity of minerals throughout your pasture and throughout your are probably diluted by your swells when the manure is diluted too So if you put those combinations together, you're taking the stress off the animals because the shade or the sun, the warmth or the cool, the wind or the shelter will increase their production by reducing their stress. We know that we can take 20% of the landscape out into shelter and lose no production from The overall property, whether it's grazing or crop, by including trees. Now, squales give you those wonderful harmonic tree lines. Now, you can also, of course, reforest the top of sharp ridges and sharp hilltops because, and steep country that's too steep to be grazed, over 20% should be put back into non-grazed agroforestry and just allow that extra surplus of triple trickle down nutrient and of course riparian areas around the edges of creeks so you you take those sensitive areas out the riparian area the steep area the top of sharp ridgelines, and the top of sharp hilltops now you can also put in dams what in America you call ponds, in the swell lines, fed by the extra catchment of the swales, if you're allowed by the local regulatory boards, so that you can have extra water in the landscape, which brings in extra wildlife and brings in extra actual nutrient flows. And you don't let the cattle onto those ponds because they'll muddy up the banks. You just have sy- siphon pipes coming off, going down into the pasture and drink troughs. So then, you also then have the added benefit that you've got shade, but you've also got you've got condensation water fall to the landscape. So that is added precipitation. Although it may not be raining, there could be there can be humidity in the air. And that humidity in the air can be condensated at night off the leaf surface area of the trees in the swell. Now that can add up to 80% to your precipitation figure. So whatever you get in rainfall and snow, or whatever else type of precipitation you get, you can add that 80% to that normal figure with condensation. Um, dew and condensation leaf dropping off the leaves of the trees if you have trees in the landscape so that's all added effect to designing the interaction of swales with trees patterned on contour into inter-swell enhancement and better production for less work on your cattle beef grazing system okay fantastic talking to you here from australia hope to be on the next show talk soon
1: so the short answer is establish swale based uh, cell grazing in a silvopasture system uh, using trees. Man, that's, that's the short answer. Uh, to see some of this explained in video, if you go to jefflawton.com, and Jeff's got a brand new website. It used to be kind of really plain and dry, the, the front end of it. And you, if you had to opt into his email thing, and if you just stuck your email in there again, you, it would let you back in. He has a proper site set up now. With you'll, if, you, you'll, if you've never been there yet, you'll have to set up a new account. Uh, but once you set up your account, you can log in and watch his videos. He's got three pages of videos. And there's one that he put out a very long time ago called Property Purchase Checklist. At about 20 minutes on in this video, and this video whole video is like uh, 37 minutes long. And it's like a master class in evaluating property. It real, it's amazing what you can learn in 37 minutes from a guy like Jeff. But from about 20 minutes in the video on, maybe more like 21 minutes on, he starts he's actually evaluating a property that looks a lot like the Willamette Valley of Oregon. It's dry, it's hilly. Uh, and he, he describes and they show with graphic overlays swales interconnecting ponds tree lines and how that would be set up to manage pasture and I think it's perfect to go along with this so I'm gonna put a link in the show notes so they just know that if you're not a member of this site you'll have to register it is free but you have to register to see that video and with that let's take another question this one uh, for Gary Collins of the Paleo uh, of, the, of the Primal Power method. Uh, This says, um, I would like to go paleo primal lifestyle, but I'm grouchy for weeks when I've gone low-carb in the past. Is there a way to wean off somehow and avoid the detox problems? I've gone low-carb in the past and had great weight loss success, South Beach, Atkins, etc., but I am unfit to be around when I'm on this low-carb model. Last time I tried for three weeks and lost 10 pounds, but I was unbearable to be around because I was such a grouch. I thought the bad mood would improve over time, but it never did. When I went back old diet habits, I felt emotionally better, but put on five pounds. Uh, Gary, what say you on dealing with this? This is not the first person I've ever heard say this. And I have to tell you, when I I made the big switch years ago, I was a complete ass for about two weeks. And I was a, a minor ass for like another week. And then it went away. It took about 21 days to break. I did it cold turkey. Um, I see it like a drug. I I haven't listened to Gary's answer yet. He might have a better way to wean off. I know Dr. Greg Ellis believes in the wean off method, that that it's easier. Uh, And, and again, I haven't heard what Gary has to say yet, but um, I remember what Greg Ellis had told me about this, too, was that sometimes the reason it's so bad isn't just the withdrawals, but as you begin to stop eating these things, your body begins to eliminate toxins, and those are going in your blood. So, with that in mind, Gary, how would you say to handle this?
5: Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And today we have a great question. It is one that I deal with all the time as a practitioner with clients when I'm working with them one on one. And that is when going to the paleo primal lifestyle, dealing with, you know, the mood swings, you know, the crabbiness, the aches and pains, the headaches, even eczema, cold sweats, you name it. Um, and that's part of the detoxification process that you're going through. When you're eliminating a lot of these harmful things in today's diet and actually eliminating them through weight loss and fat loss, I'll get into a little bit more of that later. But Mike talks about, you know, every time he tries that, he ends up in this vicious cycle to where he can only do it for a couple weeks and he feels so awful that he can't stick with it, goes back to eating the sugars and everything else, and then the bounce happens. That Everyone who does that gains actually gains more weight than they initially lost. And if there's anything he can do about it to reduce some of these symptoms, and there is, you absolutely can. But I want to start with this. When you go into the primal paleo lifestyle, if you have... Delved into the deep end of the standard American diet, you know, with all the sugary snacks and juices and just everything, you are going to struggle. That is the bottom line. There is no easy solution. The detoxification process is one that is very much like the flu, and that's what I tell people. If you can get past those first two weeks, and more importantly, the first 30 days, you're golden. Um, sugar is highly highly addictive. And refined sugar is something very new to the human body. If you were to go out in nature, you would soon find that sugary items are very, very difficult to find. And they're only in the form of basically fruit. Sure, you can get maple from trees and honey and things like that. But it's just very, very difficult to find those items in nature where you can load up. And if we did load up, we would be loading up Closer to winter, if we were in a region that got cold and we're not as close to the, you know, Mediterranean region or the equator, that would be a way of fattening ourselves up just like bears do, just like animals in the wild do. Bears go out and eat a ton of berries and anything they can find to get a high layer of fat to survive through the winter as they hibernate. We don't hibernate, but we, we, that means we even have to consume more calories. And this was common. You would fatten up. During the winter, you would live a more kind of, uh, less physically exertive lifestyle and you would wait out the winter until spring came and then you could get back into your hunter-gatherer mode. So with that, you know, sugar is a tough one. On average, we consume about 43 teaspoons a day and you should be consuming eight teaspoons a day or less. And that can, that is also the sugar that would be naturally contained in your food items. So to give you a simple ratio or numbers, there's four grams of sugar per teaspoon. So that's the way you have to look at. So when you go look at a container or you're eating throughout the day and looking at the the micronutrient and macronutrient profile of your food, you can just remember four grams of sugar per teaspoon and you should be consuming eight or less to consume consider your food. On average, I'll have a couple teaspoons on average a day, but I... Eight is fine. That's a big difference from what you're consuming. And to put it to perspective, I actually get 12 into sugar in my book, big time, change your body, change your life. And I have a whole section on it. And I talk about that if you were to take that 43 teaspoons of sugar that you spread out throughout a whole day and consume it at one time, one of two things would happen. Well, three, you would first, the best scenario is you would become very, very sick. The third is you would go into a coma, or second, you would go into a coma. The third is you could possibly die. That is how toxic sugar is when mainlined like that to the human body. Another great example is a study they they did on mice, and they gave them water, sugar, and cocaine. 94% of the mice chose sugar over water and cocaine. When we consume sugar, it releases natural opiates in the brain. So sugar acts just like hardcore drugs, opiates like cocaine and uh, heroin. I mean, very, very similar. And in some studies, they found it actually has a stronger reaction in the brain than cocaine and heroin. So just imagine that. Breaking the cycle, on average, I tell everyone, takes 12 to 18 months to break that addiction from sugar. So with the paleo primal lifestyle, I want to also say this: he he talks about you know by reducing all the carbohydrates and going low carb make this very, very clear. Paleo and primal is not low-carb. I call it right-carb. Low-carb and ketogenic diet, which I've spoken in other episodes, is totally different. It's a higher ratio of consuming more fat, uh, especially in the form of saturated fat, in your macronutrient levels, and also far less in the carbohydrates, so what I would tell Mike is what you need to do is obviously cut the sugar and carbohydrates down, but you're going to want to replace those carbohydrates with good carbohydrates, which are your, your vegetables and a little bit of fruit. So with that, with the, with that comes fiber, comes all the micronutrients we need, all the anti-inflammatories. So that's how it works. And in the beginning, what you need to do, and this is what I teach, which is very, very different than most of the practitioners in the paleo ancestral health. Matter of fact, I don't know any of them that do this. I teach you to do the traditional, you know, five to six meals a day, three, two to three normal size meals with snacks in between to equal your five or six when you're first starting. And the reason I do that is we're trying to stabilize your blood sugar. The standard American diet is a sugar yo-yo throughout the day. It is ups and downs, drastic insulin swings. And as I explained in my book, insulin is the key hormone for us to get on track and to lose weight. You control insulin and everything else in behind it, all the other hormones will fall into place. That's why I focus on on insulin so much, even though others will not. They talk about leptin and some other hormones, you know, dealing with testosterone. That's all great. But to me, what I have found, control insulin, control blood sugar, everything else will fix itself more than likely. There's some people that have conditions. This does not work, but that's the anomaly. Now, Now, for that, you know, some of the things that, you will find with sugar addiction that are key to our detriment to our health is it interferes with absorption of vital minerals. And that is very common with people with sugar addiction and carb addiction. They will actually suffer from osteoporosis and a lot of other issues, especially like sleep. They can't sleep very well. Um, Depression is very common because you're on this emotional roller coaster all day. And it creates a, a Imbalance between your good and uh, bad bacteria, it overgrows good or bad bacteria, kills good bacteria, and uh, also a yeast overgrowth. And this will cause, again, through the vagus, our brain and gut are always communicating to each other. Well, what that does, that's where you end up with these emotional issues. So unhealthy gut, unhealthy brain. And... The biggest is obviously, you know, that, that emotional instability. You'll see it with kids. I see it all the time with, with young kids, with my friends who just let them eat free range sugar is what I call it. They just go bonkers. I've seen their kids literally not eat one piece of food during an entire day, literally eat sugar all day long and they are crazy. Nuts watching them freak out when they start going, having their little sugar down or drug down. And that's what happens. That's with kids. I tell people if they have emotional problems, more than likely it's a sugar addiction. And the sugar addiction is directly tied to the adult who is letting them have the sugar. You know, It's a pacifier and the adult is addicted so they feel better about giving their kids the sugar. It's a weird sociological phenomenon. I've seen it many, many times. And also one of the keys too with sugar is that it makes you age faster. You want to get all wrinkly and crinkly and not look so good? Consume a lot of sugar that's the easiest way. Uh It's through a, a process called glycation that actually will boot a protein molecule for a sugar molecule. This is a natural process. Glycation happens in our body. It's part of the aging process. But what we're doing is we're accelerating it. So I hope that helps, Mike. Um, and he asked for if there's anything to help reduce it. Take it in steps, just like I teach in my primal power method book series it's taking it slow steps and also my total health package for men and women which has been a huge huge success i'm so glad i came up with that uh it came from you know me taking the the supplements and using them with clients but in that there is detoxifier as far as it helps with the detoxification detoxification process through the greens the turmeric and then you have your probiotics you have your multivitamin all this works Synergistically together to fight that inflammation, to get you on track, and to fight those blood glucose swings. That's the whole point of that package. Um, if you have any questions, you feel free to put it in the comments or email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot.
1: Good stuff from Gary. I have two things to add. Number one, everybody's different, so everybody has to figure out how to deal with the detox and withdrawals, which I think there are both going on there. I agree with Gary on that uh, for themselves. And then the other thing is, with the kids thing, and this is one of the interesting things I've heard from parents. Well, the kid's acting up doing this, doing that today, and they're just worse than ever. And you know, if you talk to them about sugar and their diet, and they'll say, well, they didn't have any today. So you take the kids off sugar for a day or two, and they're worse. You say, well, that's not it. Well, that is it. It, 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 people get mad at me when I say this out of this audience, and I, I don't know what group of people this is, where, how this is the of all the things I say that would upset you, but modern food is a drug. It is a drug. We are on drugs, and and it is the vast amount of carbohydrate far in excess. Of what human beings are physiologically meant to eat, specifically in a refined capacity and bound with fats at ratios that do not occur in nature. The the fat to carbohydrate ratios in processed foods don't occur anywhere in nature. Do you understand that? It doesn't. And when we take high fat and high carb and we cram them together, and then we refine when you start thinking about refined foods like refining a drug right people in south america grow the 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 the, uh, the cocaine plant the, co- 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 uh, the uh, what do you call it the uh the uh, coca uh plant and they chew the leaves and they don't have you know they're not they're not ending up in, in 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 gutters from it or anything like that. You refine it into a white powder and all some people are blowing their brains up with it and then you take that white powder and you make it into something like crack and people are destroying their lives with it. But these people using that plant naturally without any kind of refinement don't seem to have much of a problem using it whatsoever and it it doesn't really have that huge of an effect. When we refine something we increase its effects both good and bad. So we take a refined food, and then we, we, we create ratios of carbohydrates and fats that do not belong together in nature, and put them into the human body that didn't evolve to process them, and the, but the body gets a good feeling from it. It gets a lot of energy, and there's a certain flavor, and there's a chemical response that says, energy, energy, eat it now, eat it now, okay? Because that's your hard wiring saying, take this while you can get it, right? That's the windfall of fruit that you found laying on the ground. But instead of a windfall of fruit, It's processed sugar and fat. And then when you do something long enough, so, you know, you might enjoy a cigar, but if you start smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, pretty soon you're not smoking them to feel good. You're smoking them so you don't feel bad. This is the same process we're engaged with with refined food today. And it is an addiction, and it sucks, but you got to break it. You don't feel like crap, okay, because you need carbohydrates, or that you need sugars, or that you need refined foods. You feel like crap because your body's addicted to them and going through withdrawals. That's, that's just the facts. Um, let's take another one. This one is for John Pugliano. I gave you my thoughts on the uh, stock market's insanity this week, and with what's been going on, I can't think of a better subject for John to talk about. Now, John did get a few extra days to uh, to give his opinion than I did. We know more now than we did then, but I bet you his opinion wouldn't really change very much from, from where it was if we would ask him this on Monday. Anyway, John, what do you say about the current volatility in the stock market? Uh, what's going on and, uh, how, how do you feel about, uh, what we should be uh, thinking about in dealing with it?
6: Hello TSP listeners. As far as my thoughts on the future direction of the stock market for the remainder of this year, Uh, Despite the fact uh, of the correction that we had earlier in the week and then this possible, uh, you know, suckers rally that we're seeing right now, I'm holding to my original forecast and my overall thoughts on on the direction of the market hasn't changed. So I think from from a high-end perspective or the the best that we can hope for in the market would be about a 5% increase over where we ended the year last December. And I still hold to that now. The fact that the market's in correction and that it's dropped down about 10% uh, to me doesn't negate the fact that it could still rise up above 2100 and finish the year 5% from where we ended it last year. This has been a very resilient market. It's traded in a tight range all year. Although we've seen a lot of uh, bouts of, of volatility, the overall U.S. economy still remains strong. Earnings look like they're going to come in right around $124 for the S&P 500 and for a slightly more than a fair value evaluation i think that would be at that that 5% increase uh, year over year now having said that i also thought earlier in the year what i think right now was that the market could still also pull back anywhere between 10 and 20% that's based on the fact that corporate earnings have been slowing down. We're seeing an overall very anemic growth in the global economy. Uh China has gone from being, you know, double digit growth a few years ago to now where they're going to be lucky to grow four or five percent. Despite the fact that the central banks keep intervening and kept keep printing more money, it's it's uh it's you know experiencing the law of diminishing returns where we're just not seeing that stimulus pay off. And so consequently, profits are either slowing or they're actually going down. That's why I wasn't surprised to see the correction that we're currently in. And I wouldn't be surprised to see it go even steeper. So when I look at this economy, I see a 5% upside. I see a 10 to 20% downside. I have no way to predict the future or to even assess probability on which direction it will go. And that's why for months now you've heard Jack and I talk about being prudent and taking a cash position or at least taking some profits and moving some of your money to the safety of cash. Now, although we can't predict the future, we can make some assumptions. And let's assume that the S&P 500 index will, will have earnings of about $124. Well, based on past history and what people have been willing to pay for stocks as far as the the premium or their valuation. And incidentally, I'm going to be talking about some numbers here. I know that's hard to do in an audio format. I'm going to try and keep it as simple as I can, Uh, but I have also prepared a graphic that I'll provide Jack the link to. He can put it in the show notes. You can listen to what I'm saying while you look at this chart that I put together for you, and I think you'll have a, a better understanding of being able to understand valuation because that's what it all comes down to in the stock market. Things are always priced based on earnings expectations. Sometimes people are willing to pay a little more for things. Sometimes people are willing to pay a little less. Over the last few years, because the economy has been improving and people have felt better about things, they've been willing to pay a little bit more of a premium. The price-to-earnings ratio on the S&P 500 has been somewhere in the range, uh, on the high end, on the overvalued side, somewhere around 18 to 20 times forward earnings. You can get away with that type of an over-evaluation when people are optimistic about the future. But when people turn pessimistic, they're only going to be willing to pay, say, 13 or 14 times earnings. Again, I've tried to lay this out in the graphic that i prepared for you. So for those of you that aren't familiar with PE ratios, just, just bear with me. If we assume that we're in basically a historically fair-valued economy, more or less, that's going to be about 16 times earnings. If you take the $124 that the S&P 500 is projected to earn for this year and you multiply that times 16, you get a value of about 1984 dollars Now, coincidentally, that's about exactly where the market closed yesterday on Thursday, August 27th. So despite the fact that, you know, you've, you've seen all these chicken little people coming out on TV and all the talking heads and everybody screaming that we're in a correction, the world's coming to an end, or that you should buy and hold, or, or all these different things you're hearing in the media. The bottom line is, as of yesterday, the market was pretty much fairly priced. It wasn't too high, it wasn't too low, it was just about right at about 16 times earnings. Now, if you want to be optimistic and you want to think that over the next few months as we go into fourth quarter and as we end this year, if things improve in China, if the central banks keep pulling rabbits out of their hat, if maybe commodity prices start to stabilize and things are looking good, then maybe people will return to their previous optimism and will see that the price-to-earnings ratio move up uh, more in the direction of being overvalued and maybe getting up around 17, 17.5. If that happens, that'll move the S&P 500 up to around a value of 2160. And that's about a 5% year-over-year increase from where the S&P closed last December. So when I look at that 5% gain for the market, that's how I calculated it. I looked at the earnings based on about $124 per share and a price to earnings ratio of about 17.3, 17.4, somewhere in that range. That's if things look like they're improving in the overall global economy and that's where we go in and we close out the year with a Santa Claus rally and everybody's believing the media hype that things are going to get better next year. Now on the other hand, if we see people getting more pessimistic, And they're worried that the economy isn't improving and that there is going to be this continued global slowdown. Then maybe they're only going to be willing to pay a price to earnings ratio of 15 times. And that would be very consistent with ratios that we've seen in the past and, and a market that was only slightly undervalued. Well, guess what? 15 times $124 puts us right around 1867. And 1867 is about the low that we experienced on Monday when we had this flash crash that everybody was worried about. So despite the fact that everybody was saying the world was coming to an end, it was a very fair valuation of around 15 times earnings, quite within what you would expect of a healthy stock market. So going forward, I think it's very likely that we could see the market trade somewhere between that 1867, which would be a 15 times earnings, all the way up to maybe a 17.3 times earnings, which would put us at 2160. That may seem like a wide variation, but based on past history and normal markets, it would not be unreasonable for the market to trade in that wide of a range. And in fact, if things do slow down and things get worse in China or these central banks are unable to artificially continue to pump up the economy, then we could see people become more pessimistic. And even if the earnings remain at $124, if people are only willing to pay, say, 14 times earnings or 13 times earnings, a price to earnings ratio of 13 would be undervalued, but only slightly so. It would not be a historical anomaly. And if people got that pessimistic, even if nothing changed in the economy, that would take the price of the S&P all the way down to 1600 Now, will that happen? I don't know. That would be more than a 20% correction. Personally, I would love to see that happen because I think it would be a great buying opportunity. But again, I have no way of predicting the future. I'm just looking at the market in a rational way. I'm ignoring the headlines. I'm not listening to the talking heads. I'm putting some numbers on a chart. I'm looking at what would be an undervalued market. I'm looking at what would be an overvalued market. And I'm basing my assumptions on an earnings valuation of about $124, which is what the analysts have estimated, and it seems reasonable. So there you have it. That's what I think is going on. That may not be the analysis that some of you wanted to hear, but I think that's the best and the most rational way to look at the market. Well, if you'd like to hear more about my thoughts on the stock market, my general wealth building principles, do check out the Wealth Studying Podcast. Thanks for the question, Jack. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth.
1: Short version, if you're sitting in index funds in your 401k right now, you're risking an awful lot for a very little potential gain on the best uh, case scenario. That's, I mean, that's, that's just all there is to it. Now, see, what John just pointed out, if the market becomes pessimistic, and the S and P, the Dow, et a drop uh, by 20 points—not 20 points, 20 percent—below, uh, you know, kind of your expected finish. You have a buying opportunity. But you only have a buying opportunity if it's not your 20 percent that went down. Got it? That's how simple this is. I'm less concerned about people positioned in individual stocks right now than I am about people positioned in index matching funds. I want to repeat a little bit of the shenanigans that I pointed out on Tuesday to you. Uh, Procter & Gamble and Verizon are two stocks that you can see this on. If you look at the major downturn on Monday where this all started, you will see those stocks drop by a third or more. And There's a lot of other cherry-picked high-end stocks. Like I said, the stocks... The stocks that everybody would like to own. The stocks that if you ever, you know, like your your great uncle died and left you in a will, you know, several stocks that you, you'd want to see on there: Verizon, Procter and Gamble. These are companies that make money and, and consistently make money. And their uh, Pfizer's another one, very resistant to uh, recession, very resistant. Even if they come down, they don't they don't come down with the, the indexes that they're part of. All right, these are the the cherries of the cherry. And these stocks dropped with the market. Boom. And then the market flopped around like a fish all day long on Monday and ended down. Okay? And then it, it came up and it flopped around all day on Tuesday and ended sorta of down. And then it kinda of had a sucker's rally on Wednesday, Thursday, and today we're not sure what it's gonna do because it's the end of the week and people made a lot of money playing with that flop and fish this week. The traders did. And there may be a lot of profit taking at the end of the bell today. I'm just saying. But while the people sitting 401ks or whatever with just the run of the mill investment advisor, we're sitting with a, an index matching fund or a large cap or small cap fund or whatever, and they're they're flopping around like a fish. These 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 cherries of the cherry, the Verizon's of the world, dropped by thirty to forty percent for about two minutes, sprang back up almost to where they were, just under their value, and then held their value very consistently. You know, waving up and down a little bit, a little bit, a little bit as the traders played with them, but never coming down again to where the the indexes were coming down to. Which means the high-frequency traders and the large institutional traders timed their dump and knew exactly which stocks they were going to buy at the bottom and left everything else flopping around like a fish with you holding the bag. That's the kind of crap that's going on right now. And this is a, a a beautiful time for that type of thing to occur. And if John understands that a, a drop below there would be a buying opportunity, you can bet all that institutional money, all that big money understands it too. And if they need to scare you a little bit around the end of the year to create some pessimism and shake a few more people out to create that buying opportunity for themselves, there's a good chance they might do it. Will they be able to pull it off? Will something really good happen? Will something really bad happen? I don't know. Just like John. But... If you're sitting all in on index-matching funds right now, you're making a big mistake because it just the the upside isn't there. The upside is not there to sustain the, the risk. Next question is for Nick Ferguson. How to cure dairy goat mastitis. My family has been raising dairy goats as a small farm operation. We have 8 to 12 milking goats on average. I've always milked them by hand. Two of them had mastitis over the last five years. After trying to cure them with light medicines with no luck, we just butchered them. Other than these problems, other than these problems uh, whatsoever. So I guess what he's trying to say is other than those problems, there were no other problems at all. Two weeks ago, we had uh, done some lab tests in order to sell raw milk at Farmer's Market. We were told six of our 13 goats have mastitis. However, physically, there's no sign of such things. Another vet has told us that it might mean those six goats may not have mastitis but are prone to this disease if favorable conditions occur. Thanks, Victor, from the Ukraine. Hey, my my family's uh, point of origin is the Ukraine. So anyway, Nick, what do we do about mastitis, and what about this kind of weird thing where there's there's no sign, but yet the lab tests say they have it?
7: Hey there, TSP listeners, Nick Ferguson. All right. Curing dairy goat mastitis. So, what it sounds like you're dealing with is probably just a mild kind of subclinical case of mastitis in the majority of your goats. And what that kind of says to me is that most likely this isn't kind of an acute source. This is probably just a sanitation issue. So, With mastitis, the main thing you should focus on is prevention. With good preventative practices, you should be able to clear up any cases of mastitis and prevent them in the future. So, I'll just run down the main points here. Number one, wash, rinse, and dry the udder thoroughly before you milk. I use hand soap mixed with water in a little bottle. I pour a little bit on a paper towel and use that paper towel on on one of the teats and that side of the udder and then I use a second paper towel for the other teat and the other side of the udder and I pay special attention to the milk orifice because you want to make sure that there isn't any dirt or manure you know, hanging on to the tip of the teat then I rinse off with a little squirt bottle or if you have a lot of animals then it might save you time to have one of those little one gallon pump sprayers but a little squirt bottle or even it, another paper towel or a wet rag just to rinse them off. Because you don't want that soap to stay on there. If there's soap residue, they'll uh, it'll make their skin crack and then you'll end up with mastitis. And then each teat is dried with a cloth or paper towels. So if you follow this procedure you're going to prevent a large part of the mastitis cases. By washing each teat separately, you prevent spreading a case of mastitis from one teat to the other. And by using disposable, compostable materials like paper towels, you're going to further reduce the chance of transmitting it. So if you either don't wash teats, or you wash all the animals with the same cloth, there's that's that's probably your problem most likely there was one animal that had a little bit of a mastitis case and if you didn't wash your hands in between milking animals then you carried that bacteria over to every single animal that you touched some of them got infected some of them didn't so that's probably what what happened But number two, make sure they have clean, dry bedding. Now, bedding that has a lot of manure in it or wet bedding is a huge factor in mastitis cases. So always try to make sure that they have nice, clean, dry bedding. Um, And that'll really help cut down on those cases too. Number three, do what you can to prevent the doe from laying down or getting her teats dirty. The, The teat orifice takes about 20 to 30 minutes to seal back up and kind of close back into its resting state. And it has a little waxy plug that prevents bacteria from entering the udder. So you want to keep her from getting anything on that T-tip until it has a chance to close back up. So if you can, you know, put her somewhere where she's going to immediately want to just walk for a little while after she gets out of the milk stanchion you know, don't put her somewhere that she's just gonna flop down on some some dirty ground or a place where animals mill around where there's probably uh, manure. Now, for curing acute cases, honestly, the most reliable way is to use antibiotics that you inject with a little plastic tube. The antibiotics come in a, a syringe, a plastic syringe, and there's no needle. It's just a plastic tube that you you'll wash off the teat tip and you'll push that plastic tube into the teat probably about a quarter of an inch to half an inch and then you'll inject the antibiotic into the teat and you'll you'll be holding the teat tip so that it doesn't just squeeze out. Um, you want it to go up into the teat and you'll kind of do a reverse milking Operation. And you'll want to make sure you do this after the dough has been milked out completely, and you'll push the antibiotics up into the udder bag, and you'll massage it all in the the bag. And you'll do the same thing to the other side with a different syringe. So you don't want to cross contaminate, just in case she doesn't have an infection on the other side. You don't want to um, infect her with the thing that you just stuck up her her teat now i would stay away from that unless you have a serious case but for your situation i'd probably go with something like a comfrey and calendula salve with some kind of an antibacterial um essential oil so tea tree and oregano all come to mind and you're just going to rub that onto the bag and teat after milking and that's going to help her heal up. And if done regularly, it'll really help with staving off any infections in the future. But the main thing is to make sure you're using real good sanitation, and most of your problems should clear up. Oh, one more thing. I almost forgot. Um, Teat dip. Um, A lot of people will use kind of like a shot glass that they'll put this teat dip antibacterial stuff in, and then they'll dip the... The very tip of the goat's teat in that and it helps keep it clean. I don't like doing that. I prefer to use a squirt bottle and for some homemade teat dip recipes um, one part vinegar to three parts water or you can do half a pint of water and half a pint of rubbing alcohol and five to ten drops of again tea tree oil, lavender, oregano, Any one of those will do just fine. And again, use a squirt bottle. It keeps things sanitary. So thanks for the great question. I'm Nick with Permaculture Classroom. Stay tuned next week for my October 22nd through 24th mainframe earthworks workshop. We're going to be making registration live next week or sometime and you're going to walk away with the knowledge to do your own earthworks at any scale, by hand, with a small tractor, or even up to an excavator. It's going to be fantastic. Y'all have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you later. That's
1: an example of uh, why we have an expert council because I couldn't have told you any of that at all, period. Um, Next up, I have a question for Erica Strauss. Uh, This is from a listener named... uh, Validen, I guess that's how you say his name. If I got it wrong, I'm sorry. Um, how to deal with slugs in a well-mulched kitchen garden in a climate with wet summers. Erica might know something about that. My soil life is blooming, but so is the slug population. I'm in the second year of starting with a decent kitchen garden in a northern European climate, cooler in winter than Seattle, but with similar rainy and moist summers. I'm going on, I'm going heavy on mulching to improve the soil, but it seems to create a perfect habitat for slugs. Slugs, they kill off seedlings and starting plants. Some even, uh, some even fully grown potato plants. I've considered ducks, but they seem too destructive to keep in a garden. Uh, in the tender young plant stage, I know my chickens are for sure. Manual killing takes one to two hours a night. Iron phosphate slug pellets work okay, but it's an expensive option. Is there anything else to try? Appreciate any help regards, Valentin. Uh, Erica, let's say you on slugs.
8: Hi, Valentine. First of all, uh, I'd like to apologize if I'm butchering the pronunciation of your name. I, I sure hope I'm not, but, uh, sometimes you can't tell through the written word how something should be pronounced, but I'm here to answer your question about how to control slugs. And I live in Seattle, which is like the slug capital of the world, as far as I can tell. So I feel like I have a little bit of experience when dealing with these slimy mollusks. You know, my buddy Paul Whedon likes to tell a story about a guy asking Sepp Holzer, who's a major hero in the world of permaculture, a question about how to control invasive blackberries on his homestead. And Sepp tells the guy he needs to build a fence and fence off the area and just run pigs in there with the brambles. And the guy says, well, okay, but what if I don't have pigs? And Sep says, then you have to do the pigs work. And that's kind of the point. On a much smaller scale, that's exactly what we're dealing with here. The absolute easiest, best, and most sustainable solution to an overgrowth of slugs or snails is to get ducks. You mentioned this, so probably you know this, right? Ducks think slugs are the most delicious things they could possibly eat. They seek them out, they gobble them down, and they take care of the problem. I'm really pro duck when it comes to slugs, so in a minute, I'm really going to do my best to try and convince you that ducks are not nearly the garden-destroying menace that chickens are. And I'm going to try and convince you that ducks are the solution you've been looking for. But if you aren't willing to get ducks, then you have to do the ducks' work. Either you have to do the duck's work in time, meaning you have to keep strapping on that headlamp and going out at night and hunting around your garden for hours for those slugs, or you have to trade your time and money for that iron phosphate bait like sluggo and use that. So one way or another, there's no free lunch unless you get ducks who think that slugs are the ultimate in a free lunch. Okay, let's talk first about all the ways you can discourage, deter, or destroy slugs without Actually, adopting ducks. Now, I'm personally very selective about what kind of pest control I use in my garden, and I actually only use two kinds of sort of insecticides, if you will. And one of them is Sluggo. So I'm a big fan of these iron phosphate baits for slug and snail control. They're effective. They're moderately long lasting. Their big drawback is um, that they are expensive, as you mentioned. So this is one of these. Cases is where you're gonna to have to weigh your time, your money, and, uh, decide if this is the way that you're doing the ducks work. Now Valentine, as you mentioned, hunting slugs at night is pretty effective, but you can be a bit more efficient with your hunting if you combine it with trapping. Slugs love to hide and lay eggs under nice moist boards. Any nice moist environment is something that's going to draw in slugs. So if you put out a length of slightly rotting or slightly decaying 2x6 or 2x8 you can draw slugs into that area. They They'll hide there and then you can just flip the board over and this makes it easier to snip them in half or, you know, drown them or sprinkle them with salt, whatever your preferred method of slug murder is en masse. Now, another classic trap is the beer trap. Basically, slugs like beer so much. It's kind of shocking they aren't in a fraternity. You can construct a mildly effective slug trap by taking an old yogurt or cottage cheese tub or another smooth-sided plastic container and burying that in your garden beds where the slugs are problematic. You leave the edge of the container right at ground level, just right at the edge that a slug could easily get over that lip. And then you fill the container with a mixture of, you know, water and cheap beer. The slugs will smell that beer and they'll be drawn to it and they'll slide into this beer pool and basically drink themselves to death. And if you put out enough of these beer traps, you will catch slugs. You'll make a dent in the slug population. The downsides of this method are that you are going to have to change these traps quite frequently. They get, you know, full of dead and decaying slug bodies. They get pretty gross. And in this method, you're probably also going to catch beneficial predators, including predators that, had they lived, would predate on slugs. So it's a bit of a catch-22 in that way. Another option is to go with a mechanical scratchy deterrent. Basically, anything that's dry and scratchy can be used to create a surface that is inhospitable to the passage of slugs. So if you think about crushed, dried eggshells, crushed oyster shells, diatomaceous earth, wood ash, lava rocks, those kind of things, anything that's sort of sharp and prickly, if you can put a border of those type of things around your most vulnerable plants, you can absolutely deter slugs from attacking those individual plants. The advantages of this method is that it's generally cheap and easy. And if you're careful about what you add, you can actually improve your soil while deterring slugs. For example, adding eggshells to the soil uh, as a surface application very slowly increases the calcium in the soil, which can be great for things like tomatoes. The disadvantage of this method is that nearly all of the substances that irritate slugs enough to stop their progress towards your prized cabbage or whatever are rendered ineffective when they get Get wet. So if you live in a wet summer climate, as you've said you do, this is problematic. Things like wood ash and diatomaceous earth, which are quite effective when dry, become far less effective when they get wet. Roughly in size order, here are a few critters that like to feed on slugs or slug eggs, If you encourage these creatures in your garden, you can do a lot to help rebalance those populations between predator and prey. So some of the predators you want to encourage that will prey on your slugs include ground beetles. These are the common black beetles that sort of run everywhere. These guys love to eat baby slugs and slug eggs. The good news is that the mulch that brings in the slugs also brings in the ground beetles. So nature has a way of balancing these things out. Centipedes are quite predatory and they will also feed on slugs. So Uh, Again, centipedes tend to follow the prey. If you have slugs, you probably have centipedes. You might just have to sort of exercise some patience to allow the centipede and the ground beetle population to catch up with where your slugs are. Now, moving up the size ladder a little bit, we get to frogs and toads. The major difference here is that frogs really need a pond to be happy. Toads can do quite well without a pond. Both of them will devour slugs if you live in an area where frogs and or toads can be encouraged, I think you should. I think that would be a big help in nature's battle against the slug. One final creature you might take a look at is the hedgehog. Now, hedgehogs don't live everywhere. Um, I know they're more common in sort of northern Europe, but the hedgehog thinks that slugs are delicious too. And so if you happen to have one in your garden or in your neighborhood, you want to do everything you can to encourage. To stay. And finally, we come to the pinnacle of slug predation, the duck. So, like many chicken keepers, you're worried about the destructive capability of ducks in your garden. And I totally understand that because I have been burned by my flock of backyard chickens more times than I can count. Look, I don't want anyone to adopt an animal or take on an animal that they don't want. But the bottom line is. Ducks are just not nearly as destructive to a small scale urban or suburban homestead as chickens. Guys, don't get me wrong. I like my chickens, but they have destroyed my garden more times than I can count. Now, the ducks are just different. The ducks don't hop into the beds. They don't go out of their way to destroy seedlings. They don't scratch everything up. They don't destroy seeded areas. Ducks are polite in a garden. If slugs are your problem and if ducks are even remotely possible as a solution, I really do think you should consider them. So, Valentine, that is my honest suggestion. Cobble together, if you will, a combination of slug-proofing methods for your garden or... Just get ducks. Give it a try. You might find, as I have, that they're one of the best additions you can possibly make even to a small urban or suburban homestead. Guys, my name is Erica from Northwest Edible Life. You can come find me anytime at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible. Jack, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to weigh in here on the Expert Council. I sure appreciate it. Thank you, guys. So, much for all your great questions keep them coming and i will talk to you next week
1: good stuff from erica i have one thing to add um, that's pretty low tech it, even though it might not sound low tech it's the electric slug fence um i want you to think about something just about every young boy anyway at least has been talked into doing at one time or another um taking a nine volt battery even one that you know doesn't even seem to work anymore it's kind of dead it won't work that walkie talkie anymore when you turn it on and touching your tongue to the two ends of it to the the positive and the negative terminal and what that feels like it ain't good if you take a nice fresh charged up one and do it it really isn't very nice at all i'd like for you to now imagine a 9 volt battery the size of i don't know half your garage and even though it's built pretty much to scale, I'd like you to imagine that they they put the positive and negative terminals so close together that your tongue will fit in there. Now, would you stick your tongue in there, knowing what you know about what bitty one does to you? Okay, I'd like you to look at your thumb and look at a nine volt battery next to it and realize that would be about the scale. And I'd like you to look at a slug in your thumb. Guess what? That slug is all tongue, all slimy and gooey, and makes a great conductor, and he is about like you putting your tongue on a 9-volt battery the size of maybe not half your garage, but your F-350 pickup truck. In other words, it freaking hurts, and they don't like it. They don't like copper to begin with, but they really don't like it with 9 volts going through it when they are the completion of the circuit. Found a little video for you guys where you can see how one guy did this. There's a lot of different ways to do this. But all he basically did was take the wiring harness for a 9-volt battery, you know, a little snap thing and two wires come out, cut it off of whatever it was attached to, and then run two pieces of copper uh, around the edge of his raised beds, about an inch apart, with staple nails. So you've got a line on the inside with the positive terminal, a line on the outside with the negative. Doesn't really matter. And Mr. Slug comes along he crawls up and he starts to go over and he goes over the first wire and it it doesn't really do nothing. And about the time he touches that second wire, nine volts goes through his ass and he is not happy. So he doesn't go in there. Okay. Now, what this means is you got to do the pick and hunt and kill and murder of all the slugs that are already in there, but if you have conventional raised beds, which many people do uh, it 's pretty easy to do if you have unconventional raised beds, uh, then you can build something to put the wire on uh, landscaping timbers you can rip a uh, PVC pipe with a table saw in half, so you have two halves it fits flat to the ground, um, and you can even what you can do is make it as long as you want. And, and, and put your, your, your couplers on it and glue it together so it's a a single unit even when it's in half. It'll hold if you kind of clamp it together, you know, after you, and give it time to kind of fuse with the PVC glue. And, And then you've got like this isolated circuit sitting there. Now, Bill Mollison had one of these where the way it worked is the bottom wire was down at the bottom of the pvc and then the the top wire was a little higher up so that you really got them good because as that slug came up over that pipe and had already made the ground with the the bottom wire it would be his eyes that would touch the positive wire across the top ouch you imagine that that nine volt battery that we talked about uh being as big as you, as your body and then having the the electrodes pushed into your eyeballs that would suck and you probably wouldn't go in there I agree with Erica about ducks. I will caution you. It depends. How much wild forage do they have? Uh, All year long, they pretty much leave everything alone. Right now, almost all my shrubs and stuff, like up to about duck head height, are browsed off. That's not a problem for perennials, but um, I do keep them fenced out of my garden. Now, that's the other side of this. If you put your little electric uh, slug fence in and you put little two-foot easy-to-step-over fencing around your garden plots and let your ducks patrol everything else in between, well, slugs don't have much of a chance. they got to run the duck gauntlet to get in there. Yeah, you know, your battery will die every once in a while, but I mean, that battery doesn't need to be able to run a walkie-talkie to to shock a slug. So, if you start to see slug damage, you can change out your batteries. You do need to make sure that your copper wires are positioned in such a way that when it rains, they're not going to just run a continuous circuit. Nothing bad will happen. The battery might overheat and discharge itself and what all. But the problem is then you end up with a completely dead system and the slug won't shock himself anymore. So a little bit of thought to making sure those batteries don't just have like a bead of water form between them. Uh, that's not that hard to see too. That's why the, the method of ripping, and when I say ripping, I mean just cut long ways, ripping PVC pipe into halves works out so well because the water slides off the plastic. It doesn't sit on there. So that's why Bill probably came up with it. But this video... It's pretty simple. It'll give you the gist of what needs to be done. It's called How to Make a Garden Slug and Snail Repeller Fence Battery Powered. The other option if you're really worried about your garden is you put fencing around your gardens and you let the dugs into it to work the, the, the gardens for times, and then when you have it planning and they're coming up and all, you can refence them back out, and they'll do a really good job of keeping the slug population down everywhere but in there, and again, you can couple that with the electric fence, or just run them through. Run a cycle with your garden, run the ducks through it, and then bring them back out, and you won't have anywhere near the problems. Couple that with some of the suggestions Erica made, specifically the beer traps, and you'll be in really good shape. If you want to do what I do, which is just let them go everywhere, know this. Once you get up to over 100 ducks on you know a couple acres, uh, they will eat beans and peas and stuff like that. If you'll eat it, they'll probably eat it. So they'll take some in return for the work that they do um, and certain things they like better than others. So it's not like they're completely soft on a garden, but Erica used the right word. They're far more polite with a garden. And it also depends, again, on the natural forage that's available and how well they're fed. Ben Falk told me they never touched his garden, never touched his garden, never touched his garden, never had any slug problems. And all of a sudden, one year, they started eating lettuce and cabbage and stuff like that because they had eaten so many slugs, they'd done their job so well, there weren't a lot of slugs anymore. And he still said it was worth letting them do it. But I've heard from other listeners that said like they wiped out their bean plants and stuff like that. So... Short fencing keeps ducks out. Electric fences keep slugs out. Uh, Next one here is for Chef Keith Snow. Uh, This one has to do with a different type of garden problem. Abundance. Um, This would be, what can I do with all of the tomatoes and peppers I'm currently getting from my garden? Details, I have a lot of tomatoes and peppers from my garden, much more than in previous years. I usually use most for salsa, both fresh and canned. But because of the quantity this year, I'm looking for some other uses. There's only so much salsa we can use and give away. Thanks, Fred. What say you, uh, Keith, when we have an abundance of tomatoes and peppers in the garden? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer Fred's question
9: about tomatoes. Now, Fred, I don't know what kind of tomatoes that you're having an abundance of, uh, Fred's garden, is cranking out the tomatoes. He also said peppers. And this is definitely something that people who get into gardening and homesteading and do all these things that we do, um, at the end of the season, you're not exactly ready to deal with the harvest. Now, this is something that uh, I've always suggested you think about. Um, let's say you plant your garden. Immediately you should start doing a little bit of research. Check out recipe sites. Email me, Keith at harvesting.com if you have any questions and try and figure out what you're going to do to make sure that you, um, have a good way to use the bounty that you're going to get. Now that could be anything from uh, building a root cellar because you're getting into row crops of potatoes. It could mean getting canning jars because you're going to can tomatoes. Um, it could mean getting a dehydrator because you're going to dehydrate the pears from your trees, whatever it might be. Definitely makes sense to think about this. Now, uh, I've done the same thing as Fred and had loads of tomatoes coming in, or I've made purchases from local farmers and um, have had to make things to use up um, the, these bounties. Now, I'll give you an example. In Montana, I found this gal that was growing... San Marzano tomatoes, and while they may be easy to grow, it's not easy to get an abundant crop of them. They can be a little finicky. I've had some good years and some bad years. This particular gal was able to grow really beautiful San Marzano tomatoes, and I saw her at a farmer's market, and I ordered a few bushels. Um, I think the number was like four bushels, which is quite a bit of tomatoes. Now, Fred, I don't know if you're talking about two bushels or 20 bushels, but um, either way, you've got some work in front of you, dude. So this is what I did, and I wanted to share this with you. This was um, a really neat way to use up uh, San Martano tomatoes, for those of you that don't know, it's an Italian-style tomato, and it, it's, a, it's a plum tomato. It's pretty meaty. It doesn't have a high water content, which makes it excellent for sauces and compotes and the like. So here we go. This is what I did. I took those beautiful San Marzano tomatoes and I just cut off the stem end and split them in half. Then in a large, I'm talking about a really large bowl, I tossed them in some olive oil. And then I started placing them on my grill. And I had a big grill um, on a low to medium heat. I didn't want it super high. And I put them on there, a nice clean, hot, well-oiled grill. They had some seasoning, salt and pepper on them, and they were grilled on both sides. And this does two things. It imparts that great grilly type flavor to them, particularly if you could do it maybe on your Weber grill or something like that over hardwood charcoal. Gas grill gives some flavor, but doesn't give the smokiness. So it will give a nice flavor, but it also reduces the water content, adds a little char, increases the sweetness by a factor of 10. It makes them much more sweet. And this is something to keep in mind, um, you know, for the final product because it's going to be a little sweet. So after I um, very methodically grilled all of these tomatoes, I put them on sheet pans to cool. And then what I did is I took red onions. Now I love red onions, and I would slice them in pretty thick, um, maybe half-inch slices. So I took off the each that took off the stem end and. Um, The sprout end, I guess you'd call it, of the onion. Peeled it and then cut them into large, like half-inch, three-quarter-inch rings. Toss those in olive oil. Place those on the grill. Got nice, good grill marks. A little bit of char on those. Doesn't hurt. And I did the same thing with garlic and got it all roasted together nicely. These things were then combined, the plum tomatoes, which were, um, nicely grilled, the red onions and the garlic. They were combined in my food processor. And for those of you that listened to the answer I gave recently on food processors, again, great place to have a food processor works really well here. And what I did was I processed the tomatoes in bunches and put them in a big mixing bowl, the onions and garlic together. And then this was seasoned with extra virgin olive oil and then um, fresh thyme. Now, a lot of you would think tomatoes and all that basil. That's great, but fresh thyme is earthy. And this is an earthy compote here that you're making. It's a thick kind of jammy type of tomato compote. So I put in a lot of fresh thyme and then, uh, salt and pepper, of course, to taste, a little bit of red wine vinegar. And I say a little bit, you know, you're starting out with a teaspoon. You're going to mix that through. Um, And that's going to lower the pH, which is a good thing here. Additionally, I flavored this thing with smoky chipotle peppers. Now, this is totally to taste. These things can be really hot. They come packed in what's called adobo. And that's a smoky tomato-onion type seasoning. Um, I like the La Morena, L-A, then the second word, Morena, M-O-R-E-N-A, La Morena brand. It's got a picture of a gal on the front of it. And uh, that's a great brand of uh, chipotles if you can find it. And um, I think for my mixture, I used probably an entire can. Now, I add a lot of tomatoes. You have to do this. So I don't recommend throwing them all in there at once and blending them up. I would make a, a puree later in your dirty food processor. After you're done doing the tomatoes and the onions and garlic, then put your peppers in. And then slowly start to mix this puree into your um, grilled tomato compote. And wait until you get the seasoning and heat level that you like. Now, uh, Fred, this mixture can be canned. Because you put in a little vinegar, it's going to have a, a pretty good um, pH for canning. You can put it in canning jars, run it right through your water bath canner. I would say 15 to 20 minutes. Now you've got gifts. And this is what I did is I made up, I put it in a little, um, I guess they were like 8-ounce jam jars. And I made cases of these. And everyone that uh, we knew and love got uh, some of this as a gift. So this is a great way to use it up um, by giving it away. Now, what about eating it yourself, which is awesome? Um, a few quick ideas. Mexican sort of maybe Southwest style lasagna. You could have um, lasagna sheets, plenty of jack cheese, some slow-cooked shredded beef or any kind of ground meat cooked up, and this tomato compote in there with some fresh cilantro, and that makes an unbelievable Mexican-style lasagna. Another thing you can do a little fancier is make a good pie shell or tart. Recipe for that over at harvesteating.com. I like to use a little bit of lard and butter in there. And then you blind bake your shell, and then lay this tomato compote inside of it, And then go on top with roasted bell peppers. And then finally some really great goat cheese on top. You bake that in the oven. Let it cool all the way down to room temperature. And then you slice it. And that is awesome stuff. A little highbrow, but really delicious. Um, Another great way to use this, which is um, something that I love. It's kind of an old school, 70s type dish. But that's stuffed peppers. Now, I don't know. Where I grew up in the Northeast, a lot of people... Uh, eight stuffed peppers. They're pretty popular in some of the uh, Polish type communities where they, you know, stuff cabbages and peppers and all that. Really easy to do. Get yourself bell peppers. And when you're shopping for them, look for ones that seem like they're going to stand up on their own. If they're kind of odd shaped and you stand the thing up and it would fall over, that might not be the best one. And try to find ones that are somewhat wide. So you cut off using a paring knife, kind of pierce the top, turning it around, and you cut the top off and remove it. Um, Now you're going to reach in there with your hands, get out the seeds and any membranes. Then you're going to make a stuffing mixture, and this is where you can make this your own. Um, Any type of meat, you could use pork, beef, deer, elk, whatever you have, um, ground meat. So you're going to saute that with some onions. Then you're going to mix in your favorite type of rice and some parmesan cheese and then this tomato compote and you put in as much compote you want it to look fairly red now you're not stuffing it's not stuffed with the compote this is an addition to flavor up the meat and the rice and of course you have that cheese in there and you could take the parm out and you could put some jack cheese or no cheese at all but the combination of that smoky tomato compote with rice and meat Stuffed into peppers, cooked at about 325 for 45 minutes. That's an awesome dish. You put that on a plate, cut it in half. Uh It's amazing. It's a great way to use up the compote. So, Fred, <clears throat> I hope this helps you out. Um, having an abundance of tomatoes is a good thing. So um, make some compote. wanted to thank all you TSPers out there and um, let you know that we are um, – Moving quite a bit of the pasta sauce off of the HarvestEating.com website. The listings are on Amazon. Currently, they're fulfilled by us as we move through the process. I spent three hours on the phone with the uh, folks at Amazon getting our listings straight because a lot of you have requested a coupon. I do have the coupon code now, so if you want to email me, keys at HarvestEating, those emails are starting to go out now, and the product... Um, once I kind of flip the switch, then they will start fulfilling it. So that'll happen soon. Thanks for all of you guys listening and contributing to TSP.
1: Jack, thanks for what you do. Take care, everyone. And now you're hungry. Um, I'm going to make you a little bit hungrier. Maybe, maybe not so much. Depends on whether you like yogurt or not. Uh, I just want to give you a report on Erica's advice on making yogurt from last week. Um, we had a listener that asked about making yogurt and making it you know, not this no-fat, low-fat crap that's not real yogurt that comes from all the stores. Well, making yogurt is a pretty easy process, but after listening to Erica last week and deciding I wanted to help you guys learn how to make yogurt at the next workshop, I figured I might want to make some and dust off those old skills and make sure they still work. Well, what I had never heard of doing was per half gallon of whole milk, adding a ha- a cup of of heavy cream to really get that fat count up. If you like yogurt, even a little bit, listen to last week's show and try Erica's version. It is flipping awesome, and I'll tell you a way that uh, I had it one time this week that was really great. Uh, I looked in the refrigerator and Dorothy about a big basket of strawberries, so I cut up about six strawberries into slices. Threw the yogurt, a pint of yogurt, in a bowl. Threw the strawberries on it, and I had a, a sealed pouch that I had found that was like really for salads with like sliced thin toasted almonds in it. And I threw the rest of those in there, and then I drizzled the top with honey. It was fantastic. When you add that extra cream, you get more toward the cheese side of things. I'm not going to say it's like cheese. I'm just saying it's thicker, it's richer, and it's so fulfilling. And if you start your day out with a cup of that, I'll tell you what, you're not going to be hungry for quite a while. That uh, that fat and, and, and protein really suppresses the appetite. A little bit of honey is a bit of sugar, but not much just absolutely fantastic, so consider doing that. And then finally, I'd like to kind of give you a little bit of motivation this week and to get some things done. Um, it, it tends to be the case a lot of times that we have a lot of things planned to do with our weekends. I'm going to do this, 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 and that, and don't get me wrong. I think there's there's times where you say, you know what, it, it, it's time for a break, or I need some downtime and stuff like that, but... Generally speaking, we only have so much time to get things done, and most of us have more things to get done than we um, than, than 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 we have time to do. And it gets really easy to make excuses. So I'd like to leave you with a story this week that'll make it pretty hard for you to make any excuses for yourself in the future. Uh, this is on uh, cavemancircus.com, dot com, and it's a story from China, and it is blind man, blind man, and his armless friend have planted over 10,000 trees in China. For the past 10 years, a blind man named Jia Haxia and his friend, who is a double amputee named Jia Wing, have been replanting trees in the Yeli village, northeastern China to try to revive this once barren landscape. Haxia was born blind in one eye and lost sight in the other due to a work-related accident. Wing Ki also lost both of his arms in an accident at just 3 years old. The two of them leased eight acres of land from the government and started planting trees to try to protect their village from flooding. i have to scroll down here a little bit to get to the rest of the text because there's a ton of pictures that are very inspiring. And that's pretty much the whole article, but the pictures are unbelievable. Um, The the guy with no arms, there's a picture of him, uh, and what he's doing is actually dumping the dirt over to fill the hole while his partner holds the tree and he's using his feet to do that because that's what he has to do. Um, Again, I want to just put this in perspective for you. In in 10 years, these men, a blind man and an armless man, have planted 10,000 trees in China because it needed to be done and somebody needed to do it. So... This makes me think about excuses I made like it's too hot, I'm just too tired, I don't feel like it today, and just think, yeah, well, that doesn't work real well when you when you when you compare it to something like that. And, you know, these are definitely old men planting trees under whose shade they will never sit. One of them can't pick the tree up to plant it, and the other one can't see it after it's planted. Um, but yet they don't let that get them down. There's another picture uh where where the the armless guy has somehow bound the trees the the cuttings on his shoulder to make new trees and the uh the blind gentleman is holding on to a sleeve from a jacket draped over him so he can follow him where he's going um there's another one where the uh the 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 guy that is uh blind is shimmying up a tree and he's, uh, kind of got his, his hips on the shoulder of the gentleman with no arms who's helping him up the tree so we can get high enough in the tree to get the best cuttings for propagation. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, tell me how hard your life is and, and why you can't get things done and, and what's in your way. You know, again, I, don't get me wrong. Uh, yesterday, I think it was about 3 o'clock, I said to my wife, I'm done, I'm not doing anything. We sat on the couch for a couple hours together, watched some TV and hung out. You need some time like that. You really do. But that can't be the excuse for not getting things done. If a blind dude and an armless dude can plant 10,000 trees, so can you. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Lindbergh left
0: Long Island in 1927 Thumbed his nose at gravity and climbed into the heavens When he returned to Earth that night Everything had changed For the pilot and the planet Everything was rearranged We're a pretty mixed-up bunch Of crazy human beings It's written on our rocket ships And in early cave wall scenes How does it happen? How do we know? And watches who does the show. Some people love to lead, some refuse to dance, some play it safely, others take a chance. Still, it's all a mystery. This place we call the world where most live as oysters while some become pearls Elvis was the only man from northeast Mississippi Who could shake his hips and still be loved By rednecks, cops, and hippies It's something more than DNA That tells us who we are It's method and it's magic We are of the stars Some make the world go round, others watch it turn Still it's all a mystery, this place we call the world Most are fine as oysters, while some become Lindbergh left Long Island in 1926.